You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Let me read. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to ask a, the Lord for a blessing over his word before I preach. Father, uh, Lord, thank you for your word. I just ask now that you would come and that you would do what I confess and know deeply that I am unable to do, and that is to cause your word to speak to each of us. Lord, I know that I am unable to change hearts. I am unable to speak in, in a way that is eloquent enough to cause dead hearts to come to life. I know that I am unable to cause sleepwalkers to come to life and begin to live in the light of your word. So I am unable to do all of those things and more, Father, and that yet you are more than adequately capable to do anything. You parted the seas so that your people could escape. You, you saved people from the fire. You, you left a tomb empty. So... Lord, we know that there is nothing that is beyond your power, your control. And so we trust in that. We trust in the promises of your great character this morning. And we ask, Father, that you would come and speak to us, that you would come and remove any spiritual hindrances, any blockage, any barriers that would stop us from hearing from your life-giving word. We ask, Father, that you would give us the gift of your spirit this morning, that your spirit would illuminate, light up, and make sense of your word to us. We pray, God, that you would come and that you would encourage the brokenhearted. pray, God, that you would come and mend up the wounded. pray, God, that you would come and call back to you those who are wandering and astray. We pray, Father, that you would come and bring repentance to those of us who are living in the bondage of sin. We pray that you would unleash the furious love of your son Jesus upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen, amen. So I've entitled this message, A Spirit-Filled Person. A Spirit-Filled Person. Now, the topic of this passage that we've just read really is the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a doctrine that has had its fair share of controversy over the years. This, this passage especially um, has had its fair share of mishandling throughout some so-called Christian movements. Now, the concept that Paul deals with here in this passage in relation to not being drunk with wine, but instead being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, has led some people down some very dangerous and destructive paths. Now, I've personally witnessed, some of you may have witnessed some of this too, but I've personally witnessed some freakishly horrific 
things in regards to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I've experienced uh, so-called Holy Ghost bartenders who stand at the pulpit and have mocked God's Word while crowing like roosters under the so-called inspiration or intoxication of the Holy Spirit. I've experienced people supposedly being slain in the Spirit like drunken people as the preacher serves up another round of Holy Ghost brew while punching them in the stomach. I've witnessed preachers trying to manipulate people into speaking in tongues as the quote-unquote evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit by actually engaging in what they called dueling tongues, where two people apparently spoke in unknown languages to each other under the influence of the Holy Spirit without any interpretation whatsoever. Also witnessed some of these Holy Ghost bartenders claiming to be able to teach other people how to speak in unknown languages. How do you teach somebody to speak in something that's unknown? Like, a little bit of discernment um, would seem to go a long ways when it comes to uh, this doctrine. The problem with all of this is that it teaches people to desire an experience that is contrary to what Paul is actually teaching here. It also leads people into all sorts of what I would call demonically induced behaviors that that actually mock God by elevating the supposed use of a spiritual gift above the pursuit of an authentic experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me just ask you, when the authentic presence of the Holy Spirit comes, what do you think is actually produced? A hysterical experience or the holiness of God? I think what the Holy Spirit was meant to do for us was to help us walk in holiness, not hysteria. Okay? Okay? Um, now, the reason that I begin this sermon this way, I want you to hear this clearly, is not because I'm opposed to the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not opposed to this. It's not because I'm opposed to the use of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to His church. I'm not opposed to that. So don't, don't hear me wrong. The reason that I begin this way is because what I want you to understand is I want you to understand how easy it is to be led astray. It's easy. How easy it is to mishandle God's word in such a way that we lift a text, God's very words, out of the context of where it was written and applied and spoken and then apply it in ways to ourselves and to the body of Christ that the author never intended. And when this happens, we call this false teaching. Okay? You're like if, if, if you took a love letter that I wrote to my wife, and you tried to distort what I said in there because you found a couple of things that I said in there to be really cool, um, that would be a distortion of what I was actually meaning to say to her. And that's what happens oftentimes um, when we handle the scriptures especially in regards to this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And there are many others, but we're just going to pick on that one today because it seems to be in the text, right? And the Scriptures warn us. The Scriptures warn us everywhere to be on guard against false teaching. The question you have to ask is, why should we be on guard? Why should we be on guard? Like, why does that matter so much? Can't we all just read the Scriptures and take away what we want to take away from it and then... 
um, just like every other good relativist in the world, say, well, that's my truth, you got yours, it doesn't really matter. What happens when they're contrary to each other? What do you do then? Right? So this is important because it's not the appropriate way to approach biblical interpretation. So when, when we do this, when, when, we, when we lift a text out of the context and make it say something that the author never intended to say, we miss the heart of God. When we miss the heart of God, we replace His heart then with some man-made doctrine that doesn't even fit within the context of what the Scriptures actually teach us, which all of that preamble and introduction brings you back to the text in front of us, okay? Um, God's Word is meant to say something specific. That's really the point in everything I've said. It's meant to say something specific. And it cannot say two different things that are in opposition to each other. And the biggest threat in all this is that when we mishandle God's Word, we lead people astray from what God wants for them. Now, now to be fair, Paul, in this text, isn't necessarily dealing with heresy, as in maybe the book of Galatians or Colossians. Um, but he is contending, or you could say arguing, against things in the culture that the Ephesian church was in that would lead them astray from what God wanted for them. So just stop for a minute and think about the culture that we live in and how God might be speaking to you through this series. Either the culture that we live in or the culture that you grew up in. Um, think about the culture that you're creating even. Um, Think about the ways in which you have a tendency to wander away from the truth of God's Word. Even at times using God's Word in ways to justify your wandering. How interesting would that be that we would do that? See, the Ephesian church uh, was planted in a culture that loved sensuality and spiritualism. Okay? That was the culture. Um, there, there, was a, there was a high interest in anything that seemed spiritual. There was a high attraction to anything that seemed sensual. But this is why the worship of sexuality was so prevalent in Ephesus. Preached about that a few weeks ago, right? There's so many comparisons for us in the culture we live in and the culture that Ephesus was planted in, or the, the church at Ephesus. These things need to be confronted. We saw that. And Paul, what Paul does here in this current passage, in context, come back to the context, right? What Paul does here is he just continues his instructions to the Ephesians to what? What is it that I've said every week? Walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. No longer walk like unbelievers. Put on the new clothing of Christ's likeness. Be renewed in your words, your thoughts, and your actions. Live in sexual purity as sons and daughters of God. Walk as children of the light, right? It's in that context that we get this current passage we're studying. As he continues this instruction, what he tells the Ephesian believers about being a spirit-filled person, he tells them to walk in wisdom, walk in sobriety, and walk in the fullness of the Spirit. I'll say that again. Walk in wisdom, walk in sobriety, and walk in the fullness of the Spirit. That's the simplicity of what he teaches in our verses in front of us. So number one, a spirit-filled person walks in wisdom, verses 15 through 16. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Anybody ever get in a hurry? Anybody here? 
Ever get in a real big fat old hurry, right? Okay, I get in a hurry often. Sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I don't pay attention to my footsteps. Anybody ever make this mistake, not paying attention to your footsteps when you're in a hurry because you're just trying to get from point A to point B, and the result of that, of course, is what? Stub your toe, stumble and fall. Where do we get this language when we, we apply the same language to the Christian faith, don't we? I stumbled, I fell, okay? Stub my toe, hurt myself. And what I need to do, I need to walk wisely, right? When it comes to walking, it's the same in the life of the believer. We need to walk in wisdom. The question is, is, how do we do this? Okay. So first of all, Paul says, in answer to that question, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Like, oh, <laughs> like Paul didn't need to study rocket science to help us figure out how to walk rightly, right? I don't think any of us needed to. It's really simple. It's right there in front of us. Look at your walk carefully. That's what he says. Simple. Like, we must be constantly and diligently examining our walk to see if it is characterized by the faith we claim to have. We must always be testing our thoughts, testing our desires, testing our behaviors by the truth that if we are in fact believers in Jesus, then Christ himself lives within us. And if Christ actually lives within us, then what will we do? We will live in him. And then what will he, would he do? He will live through us. Listen, you can't have a testimony if you don't test. I think there's something my wife says. Probably comes, pretty sure she made that up. That's how smart she is. <coughs> there is no testimony without the test. Okay? Like the, I think older generations in the church would talk often about what does your testimony look like? Um, we talk about that much less today in the church, and I think we should talk about it much more. That if you testify, give a testimony of following Christ, your life better match that. This is serious business for the church. Why is that serious business? What do you think the answer is? Why would this be so serious? Why can't we just gloss it over and go, oh, grace, 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 right? Which actually is no grace. That's called license. Why do we do Why is this so important? I think it's so important because of the currency that it costs to purchase you. I think it's so important. Like, you know, if I bought a brand new truck tomorrow, I don't know, Chris, how much would you spend on a brand new truck? Maybe 40 grand, 40 grand, 50, could higher, 60? Like, that's a lot of money. Anybody here ever bought a brand new truck? Raise your hand. Let's see. No. Okay, anybody bought one that you felt like it was brand new? Come on. All right. So, okay, think about how much money you spent on that. You're careful with it. You clean it. You tell people, be careful with my truck. It's the same thing for you. You were purchased at a price. The currency that was spent on you makes you what? Priceless. Makes you priceless. So your, your testimony will not come without a test. We must be making every effort to test our walk. Look carefully how you walk. We must make every effort to watch our walk carefully. We must examine the fruit of the faith we claim to have. We should be constantly measuring what? What do you measure? Your thoughts, your words, your actions. You're supposed to measure those by the filter of fruit. As you relate to God, as you relate to your friends, or your family members, or your children, your co-workers, your girlfriends, your boyfriends, your spouses, spouse singular easy people easy 
as you think about the way that you relate, I mean, Christianity is a relational thing. I mean, Christianity was never meant to be in a box where you're like, oh, I know all these theological things, but I treat my wife like crap, right? Like, that's, it's a relational thing. So test those relationships by the filter of godly fruit. Our claim to faith, if you claim to have faith in Christ, it should be proven by the constant and steady growth in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, growth in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Test your walk by that fruit. These lists of spiritual fruit, man, and what those, those lists of spiritual fruit, what they are is they're outward results, okay? They're outward results of a person who is looking carefully at how he or she walks as they what? As they what? Crucify their flesh. That's the calling to a Christian. Go crucify your flesh. Why? Because you follow a Savior who paid the ultimate price and was crucified for you. Who's going to empower you to do that? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, go wait in Jerusalem. Right? Go wait in Jerusalem for my Holy Spirit to come upon you. When he comes upon you, you'll be what? My witnesses. Uh, you would be testifying to what? Not the fact that somehow you had some crazy experience with the Holy Spirit and you fell down on the ground. That, that, that would not be the thing they were testifying to. What the disciples were to testify to is the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what would back that up, what would authenticate their testimony and their story that had been tested, what would test it to be true is what? A life filled with the Holy Spirit that was backed up and proven by character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So walk in wisdom by looking carefully how you walk. Second, Paul says this. He says that we need to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now it's sobering. Sobering. I don't know how sober you get sometimes when you think about the evil in this world. But I just want to tell you about, like, man, like my week, last week, the days are evil, guys. We live in evil times. Just last week I heard of a pastor who took his own life because of depression, right? I heard of another pastor, this will rock you if you haven't heard this yet. I heard of another pastor who resigned from public ministry, track with me. He resigned from public ministry after planting his church for well over 10 years. And he resigned because his wife, who was a school teacher, a middle school teacher, was caught in multiple affairs with who? Middle school boys. The days are evil. No one is immune. No one is immune to the effects of the evil world that we live in. So make the best use of your time. I wonder, when I hear stories like that, where did it start? Where did it start in this person's walk and journey? Where, where, where did it start in terms of their walk that they stopped watching how they walk and they just started sleepwalking through life? Right? Where did it start to then lead to this kind of sinful behavior or this kind of evil outcome? And so how do I need to watch my walk? How do you need to watch your walk so that you or I don't wind up there? We need to make the best use of time. Actually, the language that's used here is to redeem the time. It's 
to seize the moment. If we sleepwalk through life, then what we do is we use our time carelessly to do what? We use our time carelessly. What would it look like for someone to use their time carelessly? Well, I, I think the answer to that is using the time that's been given to you to gratify your own selfish and sinful desires. It's a big, broad statement. We need to hear this morning because the days are evil. We must redeem the time that God has given us. We must use our time in redemptive and life-giving and God-honoring ways instead of self-pleasing ways. So watch how you walk so that you do not stumble and fall. Scrutinize your walk. Test the fruit of your walk. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith that you claim to have. Walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't waste this moment. Seize every moment as a redemptive moment to walk in wisdom. And then number two, a spirit-filled person walks in sobriety. spirit-filled person walks in sobriety. Verses 17 through 18, Paul says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Think about the contrast of what Paul is saying here in, this, in these verses. They contrast human foolishness on the one hand with godly understanding on the other. That's a great contrast, right? Black and white, pretty simple, pretty easy. Human foolishness, godly understanding. Then he also contrasts drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast there. It would appear at first glance there would be some similarities, but the reality is what he's doing is he's building contrasts. Because someone who is drunk acts this way. Someone who is filled with the Spirit acts this way. You think about it, someone who is drunk has no control, right? But what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? What's the last one? Self-control. It's actually what you, the way you would call it is it would be uh, Holy Spirit-enabled self-control, okay? Um, so it's actually a contrast. That's my point when he, when he talks about this. See, drunkenness is being intoxicated or saturated. What alcohol actually does, if you just use alcohol and wine, is it actually saturate, saturates your flesh. And it strips you of the fluids that you need to be in control of your life. Okay? That's why we must be very careful. We must watch our walk carefully. So drunkenness is being intoxicated, saturated, or controlled either by an external substance or an external experience, okay? And Paul wants the Ephesians to be what? Intoxicated, saturated, controlled, not by an external substance or experience, but by an internal work of the Holy Spirit. Like if you've trusted in Christ, you claim faith, then you have the Spirit living within you, right? Another way of saying this um, would be to say that drunkenness is foolishness that results in debauchery or destruction. And being filled with the Spirit results in understanding the will of God, which leads to what? Life-giving growth. So this portion of our text, like I've said, already has sobriety written all over. We're called to walk soberly, understanding the will of God instead of being intoxicated with foolishness. We are literally called to be saturated with, controlled by the life-giving Spirit of God instead of being saturated, controlled by a mind-numbing, heart-deadening, life-destroying substance or experience. That's the call. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I've personally uh, um, experienced and observed um, the destructive results of being intoxicated. And here's the thing. Over the years, as I've thought about those experiences and I've thought about those observations when I've seen the destructive 
outcomes of intoxication, drunkenness. Um, I've noticed the glaring similarities between intoxication with substances on the one hand and then intoxication with experiences. And I see the same things. I think what's easy for us in this culture is to be like, hey, I'm not a drunk. I don't get drunk on wine, so I don't have to hear this passage. Can I just rebuke us and say, how stupid could we be to think that that's true? Like, that is deceit. That's, that's the essence of being deceived. Okay? So I don't want us to be deceived. Our pop culture television programs, our pop culture music, and they, like, they, they act like prophets. If you, if you listen to our pop culture music and watch pop culture TV, they act like prophets. They speak truth, actually. I think they're horrible listening and horrible watching in most cases. But even the horrifying things that we see, I think they do speak truth. They all speak of the intoxicating, saturating, life-controlling effects of substances, for sure. Sex. Okay. Romance. Wealth. The corporate climb. Making it rain. Okay. Money. If you were sleeping, you're awake now. Um, public status, what do people think of me? I don't want anybody to see what's really going on behind closed doors, man. I just, I'm just like so caught up with, you got to think good of me. You can't see that about me. Like, that's intoxicating, right, to think about that. Um, individualism. You might not think that you could be intoxicated or drunk on individualism, but look at our culture. It's already drunk on it. I am who I am. You are who you are. I really don't give a rip, so just let me do me. You do you. doesn't matter. I'm not going to judge you. Don't judge me. I'm going to judge you for judging me. You must tolerate me. Tolerate my intolerance. I mean, it's just crazy. Right? I mean, individualism is gone. It's, gone, it's off the deep end. Okay? Drunk. Walk around in a stupor. And, and, and we would be foolish to sit here and think that we don't somehow get caught up in that. Um, food addictions, self-harm, isolation, identity pursuit. Like, the identity pursuit right now is so insane. Right? All the way from politics to gender. This is my identity. This is who I am. No, no, actually the word doesn't say that's who you are. I'll be gentle about that in our culture, but at the same time, let's, let's not us, if you claim Christ, buy into that. All those things I've just walked through, man, all those things, I mean, they only, they only produce a momentary high, okay? They only produce a momentary high that wind up leaving the user. There's, there's a reason that that kind of language gets used in addictive culture, the user thirsting for more. Because what we do is we use God's creation to make us feel better about ourselves. And what's that, what that's called is a worship dysfunction. The woman at the well had a worship dysfunction. She thought that by sleeping with man after man after man after man, that that would somehow make her better, right? Thankfully, there is... This man named Jesus who loved her perfectly in those moments. And he's, he's, he's present to do the same for you. And not just love you, which blows our minds anyways, but then give you a gift like the Holy Spirit. 
Wow. So that his spirit would live inside of you? Filthy old you and me? His spirit would want to take up residence inside of this? So consider for a moment how far you've seen people go to get what they want. Think about this. Sometimes it's like such a frantic scramble to get what you want that nothing can stop you, right? It's almost as though your mind is made up about what you want and you'll give anything to get it. And if you go to somebody for counsel, what you really want is you just want someone to baptize your preconceived decisions with, your, with, with their approval, Right? Like, hey, would you give me some counsel on this decision? Really, I've already made this decision over here. I just want you to approve of it, okay? So I can feel better about it, even though I know it's pretty foolish and stupid. It's like, what am I doing here, right? You ever get that feeling? You ever do that? Okay, flip flip it around. Don't just sit in judgment against other people. One finger back at yourself and know that you do this too, okay? Like, we we should have enough courage to call each other out. Like, no, foul, okay? Like, I'm not just baptize your decisions. In my approval, you should be careful with that. In our culture today, it seems like that like, like, nothing seems to be too high a cost to get what we want. Nothing. Now, the only thing that matters is satisfying that deep thirst inside of us. Relationships, money, reputation, entire families, entire organizations. All those things and more are the currency that people are willing to squander on their pursuit of intoxication. Nothing is sacred today except this. One thing that is sacred today, foolishness. Don't mess with my foolishness. It's mine. Hey, you step on my toes. That's sacred. Foolishness of pursuing the promise of a better life at any cost. If I can just have what I want, spend anything to get it, Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you're stuck in that cycle now. Maybe you've been wounded by someone who is blindly, foolishly giving themselves over to the intoxication of a substance or the pursuit of an inner desire. All I've tried to do here in this second point is prove to us experientially and biblically how I think this text applies not only to our issue with substances but also experiences. Okay? Because I know us. The, again, the general argument would be, well, like I drink one beer a week, maybe. Like, check, good, not as bad as you. And like, anytime those words come out of your mouth, you should know. You should know. There's something really off. That's what Paul says here. He says, don't be foolish. And understand the will of the Lord. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be intoxicated by wine or or anything else that this world offers because it will lead to what? Debauchery, destruction. Instead, be what? Be filled with the Spirit of God because the fullness of the Spirit, there is new life. So walk in sobriety, okay? Number three, and last point. When a Spirit-filled person walks in the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, Seems like a no-brainer. Just fun for preachers to put words together that way that makes you go, why is he saying it that way? A spirit-filled person walks in the fullness of the Spirit. Verses 18 through 21, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And that there's an inner condition of the heart here that Paul is pressing in on. When he focuses on the external performance of a believer's life, think about your external performance and how caught up you are with it. How caught up all of us are with it. When he focuses on the external performance of a believer's life, he's trying to get at the inner workings of a heart. Just ask yourself, like, what has the inner workings of my heart been like in recent days? If the internal condition of a believer's heart will, listen, the internal condition of a believer's heart will dictate the behavior of a believer's life. Okay? Now, your external performance does not dictate who you are, but how you're doing deep down inside does dictate how you behave. Another way of saying this would be to say that the behavior of my life actually only serves as an indicator of the inner condition of my heart. I think about that, I say this a lot, you guys have probably heard me say, it's like gauges on the dashboard of your car, right? If you focus on the gauges, you'll never fix the real issue, right? If I like look at my temp gauge in my car, I'm like, oh my gosh, my car is overheating. I just said, what am I going to do about it? And I'm just like focusing on the gauge. I just keep driving. Now, like, I'm, I'm going to do lots of damage, never going to fix the real thing. Like the thing that needs to be fixed is going to get hurt even more, right? Because the motor is overheating. And if I would just pull over the car, turn the motor off, let it cool down, and fix the real issue, the gauge would read right. And I wouldn't do destruction and damage. And it wouldn't cost more, right? Like, again, go back to the analogy of a brand new vehicle or a new vehicle that you just bought recently. Would you seriously want to continue driving that new vehicle down the street if it was overheating? So then why would you do this to yourself? Why? Aren't you more priceless than that vehicle or that possession that you have? So if you focus on the external behavior, man, you'll never change the heart, and what's going to happen is you're going to cause more damage to yourself. If my heart is full of myself, then the way that I behave as I relate to God and his people will be full of self-serving, self-worshipping, self-gratifying behavior. And the question in my heart in those moments um, is what's in it for me? Like that's, one of the, that's one of the easiest ways that I know that I'm walking in this kind of sin. Is when I start asking, like, what's in it for me? I'm not getting anything out of this. This sucks for me. Must be great for you. <laughs> right? I, I, maybe you guys say it differently. That's just kind of the way it goes on. It's when, I, when, I, when I get that deep down inside of me, <laughs> if my heart is full of the Spirit, um, then what will happen is I'll relate to God and His people in ways that are pleasing to Him and helpful to others. The question in my heart in those moments when I'm walking as a Spirit-filled believer is what is this pleasing to the Lord? And I like sincerely want to please God. Not to earn his affection, but just simply because of what he's done for me, right? Like, man, you spent everything on me. And help me to gut this out. So, called to walk in the, whole, in the fullness of the Spirit. What does that look like? Okay, you've heard a lot from me on that. I'm going to give you three quick things. First of all, Paul says that a person who is filled with the Spirit is full of praise. Notice what Paul says. He says that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I don't think this is a literal command, like every time I see Brandon, I should say, Brandon, I love God, I hope you do too. I, you know, I, don't, I don't think that that is necessarily like to take this literal, um, although I will tell you, sometimes Brandon does, has done that 
I think at least once has called me insane. Sounds to me it was pretty weird. Anyways, I, I, I just oh yeah, that's true. So I just I don't think this is a literal command. Okay, I do think that the way we address each other should be full of praise towards God. Um, a spirit-filled person should be full of praise. The words that come out of our mouths should be saturated with the themes of the Psalms and worship hymns and spiritual songs. And all, all, that, all that praise language, what it does is it, it bubbles up out of a heart that is full of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for His work in the cross of Christ. That's that, that leads me to the second point, thankfulness. Paul says that a person who is filled with the Spirit is full of thankfulness. Listen, he says, Paul says that we are to be giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be filled with thankfulness always. And in every situation, Chris, I think you're uh, an example of that, modeling that as a leader should do, as a Christian should do, modeling that for us this morning as you share the pain and the heartache of the circumstances but are, are, are resolute by the Spirit's power to give thanks to God in every situation. Always. Now, now here's the thing. We don't praise God for things that are contrary to his goodwill. So, you know, so a woman who's in an abusive relationship, oh, praise God, thank you for giving me a husband who keeps smacking me around every night. No. No. Get the heck out of there and get safe, right? Send some other bigger guys back to teach that guy a lesson. You should probably strike that from the public record. No, actually, I don't, actually, I don't think we should. I, that's probably, anyways. We don't praise God for the things that are contrary to His goodwill, but we do praise God in the midst of those tough circumstances and those disappointing things we experience. We praise God in the midst of the storms for His goodness and His faithfulness despite the momentary pain. Why? How? But here's why and how. Both put together, we know that this is not our eternal destination. We have a hope and it's called heaven. Well, the psalmists are often a, a great example of this kind of heart disposition of praise because the psalmists often lament the pain and the hardship and the disappointment of this broken life while praising God in the midst of those storms. So a person who is filled with the Spirit is full of thanksgiving rather than bitterness and complaining. Like when I hear somebody full of bitterness and complaining, I go, you know what, your, your, your spirit, spirit of God level is really, really low right now, brother or sister. Like you're just focusing on earthly things. You need to lift those eyes up. You start looking at Jesus right now because you're not, right? Because Jesus will fill you with thanksgiving and joy if you look to him. See, we need to be focused on the cross of Christ. Why? Because on that day when Jesus died on that cross, the most horrific event in all of history collided with the most redemptive event in all of history. When you face the horror of this life, and you're longing for the benefits and the blessings of heaven, focus on the cross of Christ, where in that moment, two things collided. The greatest horror and the greatest redemptive action. Now think of Jesus on that cross for a minute since we're there. Think of Jesus on that cross. If you need to, close your eyes so you can actually see it. I think of Jesus just hanging on that cross for you. What do you think he wanted for you the most? Do you think that your life has disappointed him in any way? How did he respond to that kind of disappointment? 
Well, Jesus didn't check out. He didn't freak out. Certainly wasn't filled with bitterness or complaining about you. He's not walking around in heaven, stomping around the, the throne room going, I just cannot believe that guy acts that way. So disappointed in him. Can't believe she would think those thoughts or say those. I'm so disappointed in her. Like, I, I don't see Jesus getting bitter, complaining. He was overjoyed to suffer for your sake. Could say that he was thankful for enduring the cross for you. Like, what, what could this view do for the levels of thankfulness in your heart and in your mouth? Third of all, last piece of this last piece of the last piece. Because good preachers have to have last pieces of last pieces. Anyways, Paul says that a, a person who is filled with the Spirit is full of what? Submission. I love the fact that the way that Paul wrote this, that this submission, submission part is included here as an evidence of someone who is actually filled with the Spirit. Now you show me who, somebody who speaks in tongues and claims to have the uh, Holy Spirit living within them, who also cannot live in submission to one another, and I'll tell you, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's interesting, actually, a side note, which may or may not interest you in the history of Pentecostal theology, which Pentecostal theology really presses the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, some of the twin pillars of Pentecostal theology, one of them was this little black man with one eye who uh, led the Azusa Street Revival. And, um, and towards the end of his life, he said, you know the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life? You know what it is? It's not speaking in tongues. Um, it's actually love. The ability to love one another. Um, which, oddly enough, sounds like the Jesus that the Holy Spirit was meant to come and teach us about. Come back to this topic of submission for that reason I say that. I hope that it will, will connect together. Paul says that a person who is filled with the Spirit is full of submission. Paul says that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do you not see there? Woman, submit to man. It's coming, don't worry. In the context of a sentence that has no period punctuation, until the end, of course, but in our English translation, it's one great big long run-on sentence, and submission permeates the entire thing here. The one another phrase is important for us to catch. I can't tell you how many times I have defended the doctrine of submission to some male chauvinistic pig who believes that his wife should just buck up and shut up. Submit to his every woman desire. I've met more men than I can count. If it's appropriate to actually call them men instead of boys with facial hair. Okay. Um, met more of these guys who believe it's their right to criticize, manipulate, humiliate, belittle, and control their wives and children under the banner of, I'm the leader, you must submit to me. And I say that knowing that I've struggled with this. Um, more than just struggle with this. I've blown it with this. I can assure you that the man who believes this way and continues to behave this way is not following Christ. Not following Christ. I, have, I would have no problem. Continues to, continues to walk that way, continues to say those things, continues to behave that way, not following Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate representative of what true submission looks like. If you want to find out what submission looks like, look to the man who died on a cross. Okay? 
This is why Paul calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for who? Reverence for Christ. It's, it, it doesn't say submit to one another out of reverence for each other. Woman, you must respect my authority. It doesn't say that. Okay. Yeah, I know. Man, it, listen, any other so-called, any other kind of so-called submission, it's actually an abuse of God's creation. It has no reverence for Christ because it spits in the face of our Savior. The picture we have of Christ's submission is simply the picture of the cross. Jesus submitted to the plan of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to provide a way of escape from the penalty of our sin through his death on a cross. This kind of submission, a submission that constantly puts to death one's own momentary desires for the betterment of another, this is the ultimate picture of sacrificial authority. That's what authority is about. It's a picture of a leader stooping to wash the dirty feet of someone lesser than him. Listen, lesser than him in terms of what? Authority. Not value. But we get authority and value mixed up. I hope that you get this. Because this is a big issue today. We get authority and value mixed up. Authority does not dictate value. Authority dictates responsibility for what is valuable. This is the reason that I believe that pastors and churches are to be men, because the scriptures are clear about that. Why? Because men have been given that responsibility for what is valuable. Follow me? Think of your boss stooping down to help you get your work done with a big smile on his face, or a parent helping their child to get their room clean, or a husband helping his wife to get the laundry done, or a wife helping her husband to get the yard work done, or a sibling helping another sibling to get their chores done around the house. Joy-filled, mutual submission for the glory of God and the good of others is the picture of what it means to carry our crosses in this area of discipleship. Cross-carrying happens to be the most dominant picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Ladies, some man comes to you, wants to use you and abuse you, doesn't want to carry his cross, you ought to dump him, okay? You ought to set a better example for the other young gals in our church that says, I'm going to hold out for a man who walks like Jesus. I just ask you, like, how's your cross carrying going lately? It's, it's, we don't carry our crosses because we got the heck beat out of us. We carry our crosses because our Savior climbed up on that cross willingly for us. It's the picture of submission. Like, have you gone astray, coming back to the original theme in the beginning, have you gone astray? Have you gone astray believing that following Jesus is all about getting what you want right here and right now? Like, Paul calls us to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, and that means if we're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, then our hearts will be overflowing with what? Praise. Overflowing with what? Thanksgiving. Thankfulness. Overflowing with submission. All these things aren't just measuring rods. They're also the means for being filled. God has made this one kind of easy for us in in this case. Focusing on the gauges in this instance, it's interesting. You focus on the gauges in this instance, you're actually focusing on the hard issue at the same time. It's, it's, It's crazy. Like when you begin to see that your praise and your thankfulness and your submission meters are running the red, then you gotta ask, why is this so? And then you gotta confess your sin without justifying it. Then you gotta give praise to the Lord, right? Give praise to the Lord in that moment with thankfulness and submitting 
in obedience to his word. All three of those can happen all in one great big shot. So the more that you focus your heart on praising God, even in the rough times, the more you focus your heart on being thankful, especially when it's really hard to be thankful, the more you focus your heart on submitting and surrendering your rights for the glory of God and the good of others, the more you will actually grow up in these areas. Think of these topics. Praise, thankfulness, submission, and think of them like muscles that need to be exercised in your life. If you don't exercise them, you'll be weak. If you do exercise them, you'll become stronger. So walk in the fullness of the Spirit by being full of praise, full of thankfulness, and full of submission. In conclusion, uh, I just want to summarize like what a Spirit-filled person looks like as someone who walks in wisdom, walks in sobriety, and walks in the fullness of the Spirit. And the reality is that there's only been one person who could do that perfectly. And his name wasn't Joe. And his name wasn't Deb. And his name wasn't Brandon. His name was Jesus. You and I will not be able to do this perfectly. What does this look like for you and I then to do this imperfectly, buckling into Christ authentically? Like Andrew's prayer earlier as he prayed, what would it look like for me to trust in you who is perfect just as my daughter trusts in me who is imperfect? That's the kind of faith you want to have, right? So what does it look like for you and I to have that kind of faith? I'd like to offer up Paul as an example in conclusion. Um, like before Paul met Jesus, he was a legalist, right? He studied and practiced the law rigorously. Anybody here grow up going to Sunday school? A few of you. Can I just uh, tell you that you are in the greatest danger of being a legalist? I know you were hope you're getting stars on your charts for that, but <laughs> it, it's just, it's a reality. You, you are in the greatest danger of becoming a legalist and missing the grace of God because you got check marks in that classroom. Your teacher was proud of you and happy for you every time you memorized a verse, every time you got up and read, every time you recommitted your life to the Lord, whatever it may be. You learned law. This is Paul. He was a legalist. He studied and practiced the law rigorously. If the law said to live wisely, which we've talked about today, he gave every effort to living wisely. And then when he broke that law, he also practiced the law by doing what? Giving sacrifices to pay for his sin. See how he practiced the law so well? This is how Paul could say, yeah, I obeyed the law perfectly. Huh. Oh. But then he would say, man, it's just filthy rags, though. Because nothing compares to knowing my Savior, Jesus. If the law said that uh, he should have been sober, not intoxicated, then he paid careful attention to staying sober. If he gave in and broke that law, then he would practice the law by offering up a sacrificial lamb to atone for his sin, to pay for it. The law said that he needed to be under the control of the Spirit of God, and he made every effort to, every effort to obey that law, right? And if he lost control suddenly one day, premeditated or by accident, doesn't really matter. If he lost control, started living under his own control, started living foolishly and stupidly. If you're found to be guilty of breaking that law, then again, he would practice the law by doing what? Offering up a sacrificial lamb to pay for his sin. In all of this, Paul's zeal, Paul's excitement was for what? It was for the law of God. It wasn't for God. This is what caused Paul to be led astray. This is what caused Paul to be a persecutor, or you could say user, couldn't you? Easily say Paul was a user of God's people. The day that Jesus confronted him, as he was running headlong off the cliff of his own desires, I want that so I'm willing to spend anything I can to get it. I'm drunk and intoxicated by this. 
self-gratification, self-promotion. That was the day when Jesus confronted him that Paul came face to face with what? Grace. In that moment, Paul was able to say, I am the worst. I'm the least. Actually, it's interesting. I said this to Brandon. You and I were talking about this last Sunday. Um, Paul starts here. I'm the least of the saints. As he gets to know the face of grace, Jesus more, he's a step closer. He goes, I'm no longer just the least of the saints. I'm the worst of the saints. And as he continues to follow Jesus a little bit longer, he steps away from, I'm the least of the saints, I'm the worst of the saints, to, man, I'm the worst of the apostles. I mean, he just keeps working through this process. But finally, at the end of the day, what's his last statement? Later in his epistles, you can track it. It's a really interesting study. I am the chief of all sinners. That's the mark of a man who is submitted to Christ. It's the cross of Christ and an encounter with the risen Christ. It, it radically transformed Paul, who, who, who was full of legalistic pride, that transformed him into a man who was broken and full of the Spirit. And this is why Paul was able to pen the words of the passage in front of us that we've studied today. And it's also how he was able to pen the words of Romans 8, 1 through 14. One of my favorite sections of Scripture. I want you to let this passage wash over you. Romans 8, 1 through 14. Paul says, There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But 
If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, a Spirit-filled person walks in wisdom, walks in sobriety, walks in the fullness of the Spirit. Why? Because that, that person belongs to God. That's why. So the question is, do you belong to God? And are you walking as a Spirit-filled person? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would come. That you would reveal to us places where we've been walking unwisely and that we need to walk in wisdom. That you would give us your wisdom from above. Your word says that we can ask for that. And you would happily give it. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and examine us where we've been walking um, in intoxication rather than soberly. Convict us of that. Help us to repent of that, to trust in you. Lord, in areas where we've been filling our lives full of things that are contrary to your spirit, God, help us to repent of that and to yearn and to desire to be filled with your spirit. Help us to trust in the work of Christ at the cross where his body was broken in two and his blood was shed out on our behalf. I ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.